We're going to read both part, portions of both of the accounts of the birth of Christ, and I want to take some implications from both of these texts this morning. And um, we're going to begin reading in verse number 18 of Matthew 1, and then we'll go to Luke 2 and read verse 1 uh, down through verse number 7, I believe. And um, so if you found your place, let's stand together in honor of the Word of God. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. And Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily or privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived of her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is being interpreted, God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord bidded him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not until she had brought forth her firstborn son. He called his name Jesus. Turn with me to chapter 2 of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Verse number one, and it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. This taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria, and all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth unto Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. He taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, thank you for these passages of Scripture that we get a window into what it was like the day that God became flesh and dwelt among us. Father, I pray this morning as we read through these texts this morning and we meditate upon the implications of them, that, Lord, our eyes would be open to see, our ears would be open to hear, our hands and our feet would be willing to obey. Or may we receive what we need this morning. May we be challenged, may we be provoked, or may we be more like Jesus when we leave here when we were wherever we came. Lord, God, our steps, God, our words this morning. In the precious name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen. You can be seated there if you would. I love the time of year. I love the account of the incarnation. Uh, the implication of it all is um, it's huge. It's a huge implication. Um all that is gone into this 
Now, these texts of Scripture we've read are extremely familiar to us. Um, as a matter of fact, if you've been in church any length of time, you've heard these and maybe even can quote large portions of this text. And uh, even if you haven't been in church, you just watch Charlie Brown Christmas. You can get some of this, right? Um, it's there as well. Um, but the message of Christ stepping out of glory into a body and becoming man, taking upon him the robe of flesh, is a powerful, powerful picture. So many of the core doctrines of our faith are wrapped up in just some simple words in this text as well. Um, we see the, the statement here, Behold, a virgin shall conceive or be with child. That matters. That's an important thing. If Jesus is not born of a virgin, then he is the son of Adam. He is not the son of God. But being born of a virgin, he is without Adam's line and lineage, therefore without sin. The Bible tells us in Roman, wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. And he passed down his sin through Adam's line and lineage. But there came one who was born of a virgin that did not go through Adam's line and lineage and was sinlessly born into this earth. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He was the perfect, sinless sacrifice. The Bible tells us that he was without sin. We find him being a direct creation, his body a direct creation of Almighty God, placed in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit. And God is stepping into human existence. When we think of this account, so much has led up to this that it's not fair really just to look at this point, but you have to back up and think about what all has taken place. When we think of this, we, we understand that the Old Testament closes and God is silent for 400 years. For 400 years, God does not send a prophet. No scripture is written for 400 years. No uh, vision is given, no angel is sent, and for 400 years, God has nothing to say to the nation of Israel or to anyone anywhere. God is silent. Now, there's a lot of implications in that that we could probably draw from this morning, and we all go through seasons where it seems that God is silent, but make no mistake, God is still working. God is still doing his work even when we think he is silent. God is silent, and then what happens? Some kings of the east see a star. A star shows up on the horizon, and this star is seen in the east. And these men begin to scramble and look at Scripture that was given to them by Daniel. And they're wrestling through the pages of Scripture to find out what's the implication of this star that has shown up in the east. And they begin a journey, and they're heading west to find the one that was born king of the Jews. The implication of the timeline is they must have left home far before Christ was born. God being silent for 400 years and now Zechariah enters the temple. Zechariah goes in his normal order to serve in the temple and as he's there, an angel appears before him and God has a message for man again. 
Zechariah, you and your wife are going to have a child. You and Elizabeth will bear a son, and he'll be the forerunner of the Messiah. He'll be the one that will prepare the way of the Lord. He was prophesied before also, and now you will be the means by which this son comes into the earth to be the forerunner of the Christ. And Zechariah says, nah, it ain't going to happen. We're too old. We're not going to have any kids. It's interesting to me that God was silent for 400 years, and the first time he speaks, man still doubts him. So God says to Zacharias, won't you be quiet for a little while while I talk? And so he takes his speech from him, and he's quiet until John is born. For nine months, Zachariah can't speak. Zacharias and Elizabeth do conceive a child. An angel appears to Mary. Blessed art thou above women, among women. And blessed is the, the seed of thy womb. She said, how can these things be? I have not known a man. With man this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. The Holy Spirit will overshadow thee. And the child that you were born will be Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. He said, whatever you want, I'm yours. Whatever you want to do, I'll do it. Mary becomes the willing servant of God to bring this child to be. She's a spouse to Joseph. Joseph is a just man. A just man. The Bible tells us he's a good man. He's a man that wants to do the right thing. And Joseph is who she's a spouse to. And, and no doubt, I, I've often put in my mind, and many in our, in our modern culture have tried to work through, what must that conversation have been like? Did Mary go to her parents and try to explain this? And, and then maybe her dad went to Joseph's dad and tried to explain this. Or maybe she went directly to Joseph since they were in this marriage contract altogether, though they had not come together as husband and wife. I don't know how the message got to Joseph, but Joseph gets the word, Mary's with child. And he's wrestling in his mind, he's a just man. And he says in Matthew chapter number one, and he was a just man, verse number 19, was not willing to make her a public example. Don't read just man and make her a public example as being parallel statements. They're opposed statements. He was a just man, but he was not willing to make her a public example. Justice would have demanded that he make her a public example. But he didn't want to do that. He's wrestling with this in his mind. How do I do this? And of course, God in his grace and his providence sends an angel to Joseph. Don't be afraid. How many times in this account and throughout Scripture we're told, fear not. Fear not. Don't be afraid to take to you Mary to be your wife. For the child that she's carrying is of the Holy Spirit. There's no, nothing foul or, or, or off pace here, Joseph. I'm asking you to take your name and join Mary to your name. And that's how we're going to bring this about. And the Bible says that Joseph listened and obeyed, he took Mary to be his wife, and then clearly again it says, but he knew her not until the child was born. And we see this awesome picture of what God was doing with working with Joseph and Mary. John is born, and Mary, of course, we, we back up, and Mary goes to see Elizabeth, right? 
And she walks into the room. Mary comes into the room where Elizabeth's at. John the Baptist is in Elizabeth's womb. And Mary is carrying the Christ child in her womb. And when Mary walks to the room, John leaps in Elizabeth's womb. If you've ever wondered whether or not that is truly a child, Scripture is very clear. An eternal being, eternal person that God had created for a purpose. And by the way, God's will for you started before you were born. And here Mary and Elizabeth rejoice together. And, and then Mary, I love how everybody is singing a song of praise through this. Zacharias has a song and Mary has a song now. And she's lifting up her voice to magnify God and, and rejoicing in what God has done. And God is lifted up and magnified. John is born. Oh, there's a stir about John being born, is there not? His dad couldn't talk for nine months, and, and he said, what will his name be? Oh, his name should be Zachariah. No, 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 his mother said, his name will be John. And they're like, hold on a second, there's nobody in your family named John. You don't name a kid a different name. He's named after the family. So who are we going to name him after? And dad says, motions for something, right? And he says, his name will be John. And at that moment, his tongue is loose, and he begins to praise God, and he begins to rejoice. And everybody's kind of going, what is going on, and who is this kid? This is amazing. And we know who John is, the forerunner of Christ, and long after the newspaper clippings of this event are shoved in the bottom drawer somewhere, and men have forgotten this event, John steps some 30 years later onto the banks of the Jordan River and points at a carpenter walking down the road and says, Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Oh, the picture of all this unfolding. John is born a decree from Caesar Augustus. Joseph, you got to leave Nazareth and go back to Bethlehem. Caesar thinks it's his plan, but actually God had already prophesied that they would go to Bethlehem. So they travel to Bethlehem, and as a crow flies, we're talking 60 plus miles to Bethlehem from Nazareth, and far longer if you're to take it by primitive roads. Even today, if you were to drive it, you're talking two and a half to three hours to drive it. And they traveled by foot and caravan and made their way down to Bethlehem. Do you see all of these pieces begin to merge together for a purpose and God is putting them all together and he's painting this tapestry and he's bringing it all to the point and I, and I love the text in Romans, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. In due time. At the right time. At the moment that God had prescri prescribed Mary and Elizabeth John was born, Caesar makes his decree, Joseph and Mary travel to Bethlehem. The shepherds are on the field watching their sheep. The angels appear, for unto you a child is born, unto you a son is given. And the message is there, and they see these angels rejoicing in who he is, and praising God in the highest peace on earth, goodwill toward men. They rush into the town and begin to tell them, and everybody is hearing what's going on, and the message begins to spread. Mary and Joseph leave Bethlehem seven or eight days later, and they travel just a short 10-mile journey to Jerusalem. 
going to Jerusalem and the sacrifices are made and it's appropriate that there be a circumcision and there be a sacrifice and they offer two turtle doves. It's evidence of their base means. They did not have much because turtle doves were offered. If they were wealthy, they would have offered a lamb or an oxen. They offer their base means. It's probably a good indication that the wise men haven't shown up yet. Because you'd only imagine if they had the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh, they would have probably bought a better sacrifice. And here they offer the sacrifice, and we see the two prophets uh, in the temple testifying of who this is. And mine eyes have seen the salvation, Lord Simeon says. They return back home or to their temporary home in Bethlehem, and they're convalescing in Bethlehem and waiting for the timing, and the wise men show up at Herod's palace. Here they are at Herod's palace now, and they, they go to Herod and said, hey, we've come to see the one that was born king of the Jews. The star showed up in the east, and we knew that he was coming, and now we're here to see him. Can you tell us where he's at? And, they, of course, they were coming in thinking everybody was going to be celebrating this, and Nobody was celebrating it. And they said, well, hold on a second. Let us check the books. And the scribes began to open the scripture. And they said, hey, it said he's going to be born in Bethlehem. So they traveled down to Bethlehem to find this one that was born king of the Jews. And as they traveled down to Bethlehem, the Bible says, and they rejoiced to see the star. Now, I would take a little bit of common myth away from us, I don't believe they followed the star from the east all the way to Bethlehem. If they did, why did they stop for directions? They weren't following it all the way. They saw the star in the east. It announced that the Christ was being born. They traveled in faith without seeing the star to the east. They got the word from the scripture that he would be in Bethlehem. They went down to Bethlehem, and when they came into the city, the star showed up over the house where he was at. And they went in and they worshipped and royalty fell down before royalty. And worshipped him as king of kings and lord of lords. And we traditionally hold to three kings and we don't know how many there were. But I promise you this, it was quite the entourage that showed up in Bethlehem that day. And gold and frankincense and myrrh were set before them. The wise men begin to leave and a vision comes. Don't go back to Herod. Herod told them, come and tell me where you find him because I want to come worship him too. The angel came and said, basically, Herod's a snake in the grass. Don't go back and tell him anything. They depart a different way and didn't tell Herod. An angel comes to Joseph. Joseph, you need to get out of Bethlehem. Take the boy to Egypt. By the way, it was prophet that prophesied that his servant would come out of Egypt. It was prophesied that his servant would be born in Bethlehem. It was prophesied that his servant would be from Nazareth. And God is moving all of this around. Joseph goes to Egypt, and then Herod rises up with his murderous and jealous revenge and begins to execute the children of Bethlehem. And the daughter of Judah weeps. In all of this, men are doing their thing, and God is doing his thing. And what we see is that the reality is that what God intended to be seen as together, because of our fallen state, we see them as separated. 
And I think the account of the nativity shows us what God intended to be together. And we miss it so often because we are sinful. But God has these things that he's putting together and he wants us to see that they are not to be separate. I just want to give you three of those this morning. And no doubt maybe you could in your study find others that would be joined together. But I want you to see these three. First off, I want you to see time and eternity. Too often we think about time being what's going on here, and we think about the now and, the, and all that has to happen around us in the moment, and many of you even right now, your mind is running to a shopping list that needs to be cared for, or a grocery list that needs to be cared for, or how many miles you're going to travel over the next several days, and those things run into our mind, and we dis, de- distance what's happening in the present from eternity. See, Joseph and Mary lived out their life in the present. You know, and I think a lot of times we would say, you know, if I could see a miracle, Pastor, then I would never doubt again. If I could just see something that would convince me, then I'd never doubt. (laughs) John the Baptist, he saw Jesus being testified from the Father with the Spirit said, behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world, and just a few days later says, art thou the Christ, or look we for another. Because the reality is, the amazing miracles that came down, Mary saw an angel, yes, she heard the message, she saw the shepherds yet, she has heard the prophecy, but all of that happened within the first two or three months of the birth of her son. And then for the next 40, 50 years, she lived out. And it was a lot of daily And too often the daily grind helps us to think that there's not something going on behind the scenes. She saw the angels live out, but then she lived a lot of months and years and decades without ever hearing an angel or seeing another vision. And all of those things were on the sideline and somewhat in the back of her mind. You see, there was a visible stage with visible people carrying out temporal agendas. We see that, don't we? I mean, Caesar makes a decree Everybody come and be taxed. Go back to your home country. We're going to do a census. I want you to go home to where you were born. And everybody begins to travel. And, and Caesar, no doubt, is looking at his decree and looking at his power and looking, look how people are just moving at my word. And Caesar has no idea that he is moving at the word of another. And Caesar, in his boastfulness of all that is taking place, nobody remembers Caesar, but everybody remembers Jesus. And Caesar is making his his temporal purpose, Herod's murderous intent, I'll show this king of the Jews who would take my throne and he does all that he can and he does the most evil he can do to accomplish his ends and yet he still cannot stop God's purposes. We see not only the, the visible innkeeper and the shepherds and Mary and Joseph and the wise men doing the normal routine things that had to happen. The wise men had to pack the camels and they had to travel many nights and cold nights on the desert and hot days on the desert and they did all the normal routine but understand that behind the scenes not only was there a visible work going on, there was an invisible stage that was being played out as well. And God was working his purpose and his plans. I want you to see in Revelation with me this morning. Turn to Revelation chapter number 12. We're going to put it on the screen as well if you don't get there. But Revelation chapter 12, 1 through 6. Now, I think a lot of times we look at the incarnation and we think of this story of the birth of Christ. But I wonder if we could see it from heaven's perspective, how it might look a little different. Look what he says in verse number 1 of Revelation 12, 1 through 6. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, 
a woman clothed with the sun and moon under her feet, and upon her head was a crown of twelve stars. She being with child cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with the rod of iron. And her child was called up to God in his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she was a place prepared of God that they should feed her there. 1,203 score days. And what do we see? We see the meta-narrative of the incarnation taking place. That Satan was doing his best to oppose and destroy. And we see a peek into time of what it looks like for Satan to oppose as he uses Herod's sword. And he tries to destroy, but he cannot do it because God delivers this child. And God does his work. And what I want to say to you this morning is though you and I are laboring in the present right now, understand that eternity is not something that is separated from the present, but it is running parallel with what we're doing right now. That though we fight in the visible world, there is a spiritual battle going on behind the scenes and time and eternity are not so far apart and I can't see it always with another Monday and another Tuesday and another Wednesday but I understand that God is doing his work and a sovereign God is painting his purposes on the lives of each individual in this room today and I believe when we step into eternity we're going to stand back and we're going to see a patchwork quilt of God's amazing grace painted on the lives of every person that he has called to himself. And God is working behind the scenes. Don't ever get wrapped up in the idea that only what you see is reality. Because I got news for you. There's something going on behind the scenes that you haven't seen yet. And you don't know what God's doing. God is working in eternity outside of time to accomplish his purposes in time. God has the plan in the midst. Time and eternity are not separated. You know, I think when I was a kid we used to sing the song, In the Sweet By and By. Anybody ever sing that? In the sweet by and by. Too often, though, we get so wrapped up living in the nasty now and now that we forget about the sweet by and by. God has a purpose in time that he's working in eternity, and those two are not separated. God is working it out. And so here's what I believe. I believe when you go to work tomorrow morning or when you log into school next, next month, that what we're doing in time affects eternity. Now, I can't paint a picture for you how it all connects, but I think when we step into eternity, we'll see the picture. We'll see what God is doing. Not only do I think the incarnation joins time and eternity, I think the incarnation joins God and man. Now, this is interesting because the word Emmanuel means God with us, and we understand that Jesus Christ was truly God and truly man. In the beginning of creation, it was not God's intent that man be separated from God. But God intended to dwell with man. He intended to fellowship with man. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter number 2 and verse 8 that God walked in the cool of the day in the garden. Almighty God dwelt with man in the garden and walked in fellowship with him. It was God's intention to be there together and to fellowship with man. But because of sin... The Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter 59 and verse number 2 that our sins and iniquity have separated between us and God. 
That sin has come in and it has separated God and it has separated man. And God in his holiness cannot look at man in his sinfulness. And man in his sinfulness cannot find a way to get back to God in his holiness. And all of man's religion is man trying to figure out a way of his own efforts and own designs to get back to God. And God and man are separated. And that brokenness was not God's intention. God had a purpose for it all. And you know, in our Old Testament saints, they understood that there was something going to take place to fix this, but they didn't see it in the fullness of what it was going to happen and how God was going to restore man. God in his holiness and his justice and man in his iniquity and his sin, and now we're separated. What would happen? Go with me to Job. Job chapter number 9 and verse number 2. You know the account of Job, and Job has some incredible theological and even philosophical discourses. And in this one account here, I want you to see where Job is wrestling with this issue of how does God and man come together? How is this possible? Look what he says in verse number two of chapter number nine. He said, I know so of a truth, but how should man be just with God. He's asking this question, how can man be just with God? As a matter of fact, if you read all of chapter 9 and you read chapter number 10, you're going to see Job wrestling with the greatness and the awesomeness of God, and he's trying to figure out a way to argue how can man be reconciled to a God that is so holy. Job concludes, unless God reaches down to man, he can't. But he asked this question, and look what he says in verse number 28. He said, I am afraid of all my sorrows, for I know that thou will not hold me innocent. What a statement. He knows that God will not hold him innocent. He said, if I be wicked, why then labor I in vain? He's saying, look, I, I've seen my state and I know that God is not going to count me innocent. So if I am wicked, what's the point? Why labor anymore? Because all of my labor is in vain. And this morning, any labor you are doing to restore you to God is in vain. And he stands there with this dejected, hopeless outlook. Verse number 30, he said, if I wash myself with snow water. What a picture. Water that is pure, clean. He said, if I wash my hands, myself with snow water, and I make my hands never so clean, yet shall thou plunge me into the ditch, and mine own clothes shall abhor me. And Job is echoing with the other prophet when he says that my righteousness is as filthy rags. He said, there's nothing I can do. Verse 32, for he, God, is not a man as I am, that I should answer him, that we should come together in judgment. Verse number 33, neither is there any daysman betwixt us. What's a daysman? The word here, daysman, is a go-between, an arbiter. He said, I wish there was somebody who could understand where God's coming from. And understand where man's coming from. And listen to the words of Job that he's pleading for. 
Neither is there any daysman mixed betwixt us that he might lay his hand upon both of us. Oh, what a picture. Can you think of somebody who could lay his hand upon God and do so rightly and lay his hand upon man and do so without defilement and he could join them together? Job is pleading for it and here's what he says. If this person could be found, let him take his rod away from me and let not his fear terrify me. Oh, if there was somebody who could touch God and touch man and bring us together and help us to understand what it is in the middle here that is at wrong, he said, then I would not be terrified by God. Then would I speak and not fear him. It is not so with me. Job was looking for a daysman who would go between and touch God and touch man and bring the two together and his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. The God-man stepped onto the pages of history and he understood the holiness and embodied everything that was God. We saw it just a few weeks ago, the fullness of the Godhead bodily, but he took upon himself the form of a servant and he came down to man and he joined God and man back together. What we see is in Jesus Christ, God and man are no longer separated. He bridged the gap. What did the incarnation tell us? That time and eternity are not separated. That God and man are no longer separated. And by the way, it started off with God and man dwelling together. It's going to end that way too. Look at Revelation chapter 21 real quick. Revelation 21. If you're there, say amen. If not, just tell intelligently at the page you're on because I'm going to start reading. I saw a new heaven, verse number one, and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. And I heard a great voice out of the heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them, and he will be their God. And God shall wipe away all the tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And all God's people said, God dwelt with them. The incarnation tells me that time and eternity are not separate, that God and man are no longer separated. But then lastly, it tells me, that justice and mercy are not separated. Romans 3.26 tells us that Jesus is both the just and the justifier. Now how can he be just and a justifier? You see, and this is the quandary because we would try to figure out a way to be just. And it's the same quandary that Joseph was wrestling with. I mentioned that to you earlier. Joseph, a just man, wanting to do the right thing, but was not willing to make her a public example. Is there a way that we can bridge these two of justice and mercy? 
Joseph is wrestling with it. The, the, Paul in Romans 3 lays it out that Jesus is just and the justifier. And the only way that he is just and the justifier is somebody had to pay the price for the crime. This morning as someone broke into your home and they harmed your family and stole your belongings. They were captured and put on trial for their crimes and in the course of that hearing they pled guilty. The judge looks down at them as they stand before the court of justice and he says, you know what, I see what you've done I see the evidence, I hear your plea of guilty, but I'm going to let you go. All charges dropped. Is that justice? No, not justice. It's a miscarriage of justice. And for God to look at me in my sin and see me in my rebellion against a holy God and for him just to say, ah, don't worry about it, Mike, I'll let it go. That's not justice. But justice is seen when Jesus Christ took my sins upon him. He paid my sin for me, and therefore God in Jesus Christ is both just and the justifier. Jesus Christ took the wrath of God, and probably not a verse you think about when you consider the incarnation, but I'm going to take you to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. If you get there quickly, I, we're going to begin reading it, Isaiah 53. I want you to see it. So Isaiah chapter 53. We know this account. We use it at Easter and rightly so. Verse number three, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. We hid as it were our faces from him. He is despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace is upon him and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and turned everyone into his own way and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of his all. Jesus Christ bore our iniquity that he might be just and justifier, that he might be just and merciful. He took it all upon him and here's what he says in verse number 9. Verse number 10, I want to jump there. Yet, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Now, you listen well here this morning, church. I want you to know it, and I want you to hear it well. It was God's plan to sacrifice his son for your sins. That was God's purpose in eternity past. I will never understand the wonder of it all, but Scripture is clear that God ordained that Christ would suffer for the sins of the world. And Jesus Christ came down, and it says it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put on him, he has put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant, here it is, justify many. Why? For he shall bear their iniquities. He justifies many because he bore our iniquities. 
So we return to Joseph, sitting alone in a quandary, a just man, not willing to make her a public example. And Joseph, the place where justice and mercy meet are in the womb of your wife. Because in the person of Jesus Christ, justice and mercy are satisfied together. What a wonderful message that justice and mercy are not separated. Time and eternity, what you're doing affects eternity. And God is doing what you cannot see. God and man have been reunited through the daysman, Jesus Christ. He placed a hand on God, and rightly so, for he was God. He placed a hand on man, and rightly so, for he was man. And God has restored us to himself through Jesus Christ. He took our sins upon him, and he justified you and I by his grace. What a savior. These words were written probably 150 plus years ago, but I think they outline it by Albert Barnes. Listen closely. Poetry often is lost on us. We don't use it as much as we used to. Listen if you would. Till God in human flesh I see, my thoughts no comfort mind find. The holy, just, and sacred three are terror to my mind. Listen to what he said now. Till God in human flesh I see, my thoughts no comfort find. The holy, just, and sacred three are terror to my mind. But if Emmanuel appears, my hope, my joy begins. His grace removes my slavish fears. His blood removes my sins. And that's where we stand this morning. Time and eternity. God and man justice and mercy. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you for your word, or thank you for the sufficiency of our Bibles that we hold in our hands this morning. Lord, I pray, Father, there be one under the sound of my voice that does not know you as their Savior. Before they leave here today, they would settle in their heart that they are trusting Christ and Christ alone. With their heads bowed and eyes closed. As you sit there in your seat this morning, I don't know what's going on in your heart. But between you and the Lord, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior today, I would encourage you in just humble faith where you sit to call on him. Acknowledging you're a sinner, deserving his judgment upon your sin, and claiming his sacrifice to cover your sin. Scripture tells us, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. What a promise. Believer this morning, I hope that you'll see the purposes of God are working behind the scene to accomplish your end, even in your life where you can't see it happening. Let's stand to our feet and we'll sing together this morning.